listener production. You are listening to episode 198 of the Howie Games, part B, featuring cricket all-rounder Bharat Sundarayson. So you get into writing about cricket for the Times of India? Uh, the Indian Express. Indian Express. Yeah. The Indian Express. So what's involved in writing about cricket in India? Oof. My When I finally became a journalist, my brother asked me this question. He's like... Right now, everybody in India thinks they know cricket. Everybody has access to a computer or a laptop. How are you going to stand up? Well, like, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. this level of competition exactly. again. Why am I reading you exactly, when there yeah. are 450 yeah. options from every single practice session? Yeah. Uh, I think I always prided... First, before I even get into my journalism thing, I always prided in being a really good storyteller. Like, I think I... I hope I'm doing a good job now as well. Like, But... If from the time I was a kid, I would always tell stories. Like I would always narrate what happened in school, kindergarten to my mother. I would do voices and all of that. So I think I've just brought that into 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 my journalism. I, I just and I always tell people if if you can as a writer, especially when you're writing about sport and stuff, it's different when you're writing about something much more serious. Like when you're writing about sport, if you can take the reader on a ride, on a journey, like where you're not the reader is not sitting in front of you, but like the reader, he or she is with you, like you're putting an arm around them if they want you to, and then like kind of guiding them along. Like when I write about nets, it's never oh, like Steve Smith did this and Manus Labushain was doing that. It's almost like, hey, look, that's Steve Smith. Like, oh, what's he doing with his guard? Maybe he's doing it because of that. Or probably he's doing that. Hey, look, Manus is playing around with his wicket-keeping gloves. Like, that's the tone I like to use to kind of bring more people for the ride. And uh, and you need to create a niche like that. Like you can't, like, it, like you said in India, it's so difficult to do that. Um, but I think I got lucky. I worked for a newspaper which allowed you to, be yourself as a writer. And so when you started pumping out immediately, or they're like, you're up, this is what we need, or they're like, eh, not sure about what you're doing here? Uh, no, I'm, I think I had a boss who stayed my boss for 10 and a half years called Sandeep Duvedi, who uh, like really shaped my, like, you know, so I'm like an outsider in this industry. I yeah. don't anything. I didn't grow up to be wanting to be a journalist. I was like, yeah, and then from there to this. So, but he saw that ability, uh, he, like everyone else in my life before that, realized that this kid knows more cricket than like, yeah. and I'll give you an example. Um, this moment like kind of changed his the way he looked at me from a cricketing sense. Australia were in India. And, like, so I become a journalist in May 2008. Then the first IPL season is going on. In uh, September or something, Australia came here to play four test matches. Uh, Ponting was captain. Ganguly and Kumle retired during that series. So before the series, they had a warm-up game in Hyderabad. And uh, my boss was going there to do these media interviews with Australian players or whatever. So he put me aside. So he's like, oh, do you have any ideas for this Australian team? I was like, oh, yeah, I do, actually. Um, so I gave him five ideas. One is like, look at the last four test twos that Australia have come on. Every time they've had one spinner, Gavin Robertson, Nathan Horitz, uh, someone else, who've, uh, or Colin Miller even. One tour and then they're gone. One tour and like Indian tours finish off off spinners. And yeah. He almost went do you have any more ideas? And like, you know, I started giving him three, four and he was like, okay. And literally within a week, I was covering a one-day international match or maybe within a, within two, three weeks. And back then, uh, we like, uh, if you work for a big newspaper, it was different you work for cricket for whoever. Big newspaper, you had to come through the ranks, cover yeah. school cricket. Yes. And like, you know, you know how it is. Do the I whole... Do. I was just thrown into the deep end because they took a punt on me. And it really changed a lot in... In journalism, yeah, like a lot more punts started being taken because they took a big punt on me. 
And yeah, within six months, I was doing international cricket. Within like 18 months, I was doing international tours. Um, and it just like took off. And I just, I think I just stayed true to myself of being uh, obsessed with some aspects of cricket, like the training bit and all that. That's now I, I put it on social media so people think I do it for that. No, I've always done it. And like my first thing, my first love, storytelling. Like I love telling stories. I think that's helped. So talking about telling stories, you started this by saying you wanted to go up to your West Indian cricketer. Now, there's a, some beautiful things that Bharat has written over the years. I think the one that grabbed a lot of people mm. was when you wrote about a chap by the name of Patrick Patterson. Read me the first paragraph here. So this is, yeah. this is a journey that Bharat will take us on in what, for me, is the best piece of cricket journalism I've read in 15 years, oh, to be you. honest. Like, it, it, I, I say that seriously, yeah. like, it captured me, to, just for the yeah. people here. So this starts with him. This is not easy for me. Believe you me. Believe you me. Those are the words I hear before the door opens. After six years and three trips to the Caribbean, searching and scouring the entire, entire Jamaican island for Patrick Patterson, the moment has finally arrived. I'm outside his residence and he's just about to step out. But somehow, I'm not sure of what to expect. So this is Patrick Patterson, a, a fearsome, a fearsome fast bowler for the West Indies. As we discuss this, Barrett, it's probably best we sort of keep it almost rapid fire. Yeah. So why, for you, do you start pursuing Patrick Patterson? Uh, as a child growing up, being a West Indian fan, I watched a very little bit of Patrick Patterson. My brother would get me to like reenact bowling actions. So obviously we didn't have headbands. Every time Patrick Patterson bowled or Wakar Yunus bowled, he would put like this belt around my, <laughs> like waist belt around my forehead. It stung a little bit. But then I would like little Bharat would do the whole Patrick Patterson thing of lifting my leg. From that point on, like I was like, I like the name, it, like kind of this alliterative name. So it kind of just stuck with me. So every time I went to the West Indies as a journalist, I wanted to find out more about him because nobody seemed to know about so him. So he was, he was off the... He was off the radar. So where'd you start? I didn't know where to start. So 2011, I just... So this started in 2011? Yes. When was the article published? 2017. See, so this is what true journalism is. So this is a six or seven year project yeah. to write yeah. this article. Yeah. So where's your first real breakthrough in the hunt for this mysterious West Indian quick? So in 2011, I spent like two weeks in Jamaica. Like when in the West Indies, Javier, if someone says, oh, they're gone, last in the bush, man... There's some semblance of it. Like, you know, something about, like, there was um, uh, Richard Austin, who poor guy would run around Savannah Park. He'd, like, you know, was, wasn't, it was mentally ill at that point. Or other people who went on these rebel tours. But Patrick Patterson, they would say that, but there was no sign of him. Lost in the bush. Lost in the bush, yeah. So I was like, that can't be true. So that's 2011. 2013, I got my first breakthrough. My wife came with me. This, we'd just gotten married before that. I said, oh, big honeymoon in the Caribbean. What does she have to do? <laughs> so, like, Dal, day one, we're hunting for Patrick <laughs> Patterson. We got the north and the beaches. We got the east coast and the resorts. But no, Dal, what's your beautiful wife's name? Isha. Isha, we are going on a hunt for a distant West Indian queef. Funnily enough, like before we even started looking for Patrick Patterson, she had to walk through some really dangerous parts of Kingston to find the house that Chris Gale grew up in. Right. So that was her right. first day in Jamaica. Can be a rough spot, Kingston, to be fair. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So uh, then, so there was a break between Jamaica and Trinidad. So I said, let's go on this road trip. 
and we went through these villages where Patrick Patterson is supposed to have come from, and everywhere we stopped for a red stripe, as you do. Ah, uh. you know, good, great beer. I would ask them, do you know where Patrick Patterson? And then finally, I reached this one little shack, and they say, "Oh, Patrick Patterson, yeah, his parents live just down the road. Like I'm this. his uncle, a cousin." I'm like, "Really?" I'm like, "That's it. Solved. I found him. Like, I must be with his parents." He takes me to the house, but well, us to the house. He just knock on the door. He just knock on the door. Introduce yourself. Yeah. And I'm Barat from India who wanted to be a West Indian cricketer. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I wanted to play for Jamaica. Right. You know. uh, and then they say, no, we don't know where he is either. His parents didn't. Yes, his parents did not know where he was either. So hmm. like, uh, and then his mother, who's since passed away, she said, oh, like, and she's talking about someone in his fifties. Like, I'm a good boy. I'm a really good boy. I'm me Patrick. I'm a good boy. And then I was like, oh, this is yeah. So I asked them, can I write about like? And they're like, yeah, what do whatever. So I wrote a piece about how even his parents don't. That was the first time I wrote about. So that's your first piece. So what, first what year is this? Two thousand thirteen. And that's that. Even his mum and dad don't know. Where yes. It is. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yeah. And then where do you progress from there? Uh, and then the next time I went there was two thousand seventeen. So four years later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I still like I said if I go to Jamaica I have to look for him. That's it. Like yeah. And then how we like I like the rest of the story. I just meet like this fab fabulous group of people who I never thought I would meet who kind of. Played a part in me, me finding him. This is the joy of storytelling, isn't it? It is. It is like yeah. It starts off with the Airbnb I'd booked randomly in the in Strawberry Hills, man, and uh, Courtney, who I've become good friends with, uh, who uh, didn't know anything about cricket, ran this Airbnb. I'd spent a lot of time in the US in the military, and then getting into trouble in the US. I'd been sent back to Jamaica. Runs this Airbnb. He's like, oh, I am in the business of finding people. <laughs> Okay, fine. Courtney. Yeah, Courtney. And I'm like, yeah, right. He's like, yeah, brother, I can do that. I'll and I to tell him about Patrick Pye. He's like, why are you so obsessed with this guy? It's like he's a great cricketer who's gone missing. He's like, okay, I will use the services of the RIA. RIA. Yeah, I said, what's the RIA? The Rastafari Intelligence Agency. <laughs> if I want to join any intelligence yes, agency, yeah. I'm not going Mossad. Nah, nah, I'm nah, not nah, going nah. ASIO. I'm joining the RIA. RIA. <laughs> yeah, you're fitting in for the RIA, yeah, my friend. Pretty, pretty much. I think I am part of the RIA. Now. <laughs> I reckon you probably are. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then, I mean, then the RIA find out, like, you know, I mean, it's not official, but there is something called the RIA. So they find out stuff, and then um, I'm introduced to this. A uh, very famous reggae musician of yore called Fred Locks, like this beautiful pot-bellied guy with massive dreadlocks, and his brother Scary, who's got like scary eyes and this deep voice. That's his name, Scary. That's scary, yeah. They just call him Scary. And at one point, so me, Courtney, uh, Fred Locks, and and Scary, we are in, and and they had a sister as well. They were all sitting in their house, and they're giving me this big lecture on. Being Rastafari and what it means and what it entails, and then it turned out that Scary at some point had dealings with Pado about had to do with drugs, um, and he's like, I still have a contact for him, but I don't know whether like yeah, I'm like yeah, and that's how it all started. So I call this number, I don't know what to expect, and this guy picks up and he says, Hello, sir. I'm like, well, maybe Patrick Patterson is this rich industrialist who does. He sounded so articulate and yeah. Initially, and I was like, "Sir, like, can I interview you about your cricket?" He's like, "Oh, I don't remember much about it. You know, I know I played cricket, but I, don't. I was like, you don't remember much? No.' And also, I thought women play cricket to that. I was like, "Whoa, what? what? Yeah. This is on the phone. Yeah, it's on the phone. I was like, "Oh, okay." So I said, "Sir, I really think I want to meet you." Like, uh, 
initially he said oh i don't do this uh, okay come call me tomorrow call him tomorrow he's like no no i can't do this i'm like you know yeah. oh no no in fact he gave me a time come at 4 pm then i call him and say sir can i get your address he's like no i can't you cannot come here that's it i you don't know i'm like uh, so i'm trying to tell no no so i think you need to tell your story like everybody thinks you're crazy everybody thinks you're in the bush like you need like uh, and then uh, so at one point i just said look mr patterson all i'll say is forget about me i'll go my way some day you need to tell your story to someone otherwise you'll just be remembered as this guy like he kept saying that people will come and take me away and all that he lives in fear like and i said look if you want to i could like yeah then he calls me later on that evening he rang you he rang me and i was like oh okay and he's like um something just tells me and i told him i went and found his parents like, he said you went and found my parents something tells me if i meet you my life will change so i want to meet you I'm like oh yeah 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 for sure yeah huh. and I I went to his house he never let me inside his house finally he's on one wall he has regret on another wall he has like other stuff like negative stuff just like painted on his walls he never let me inside but he came out and that's the intro of the piece where he comes out and I don't know was he was he going to come in a wheelchair is he on two legs because the way he described it himself he said I'm in a state of destitution you don't like a Then this guy walks out with a smile on his face. That tooth is still missing, and he's obviously much crownier than what we remember him. Um, he was a massive man. He's a big, huge. Guy, a huge man, and thus became began this relationship that I still continue with. So you still keep in touch with him. I just have to have like it's at that point that first chat we had over a beer. I was buying him beer and trying to interview him, and then I just put away the video and I said, "Let's have a chat." I realized that this is a life. like this i will like this guy and me are connected now like uh, we can't it's just one story i've written people say good things about it that's fine but i am his window into the world like i have to keep him afloat in that sense like yeah so and that's what i've done like i've speak to him once every month at times a few times every month and every time i speak to him i try to get him to remember something about his cricket and nothing nothing pleases him more than me telling about some modern day cricket lungi ingri bowls like you oh, I, my story about me breaking my thumb playing in a match yeah. in in england he's like so can you repeat that story <laughs> just listening to you talk about the joy of running in from long on and diving plenty please repeat that so story so love for cricket that love for cricket like yeah and he's living by himself living by himself <laughs> there are times he can't eat there are times it's thankfully it hasn't happened much of late there are times i'll get a call and i'm like it's like 3 a.m in jamaica and he'll be in a very bad mood and literally ask me why he shouldn't Bruh. should be alive yeah so and he's like, suffering from mental health he issues is, yes yeah and then i don't know what it and like i can't even send anyone to him to get checked i trust started a go fund me for him 2 years ago and like you know we still pay bills and stuff like so he is sorted in that sense his phone bill and every other bill that he has to pay uh but yeah there is unfortunately no light at the end of the tunnel because there is such distrust with human society for him that uh he's he won't let anyone like yeah i mean um a few years ago i got a call saying um oh we just wants to go and meet him but he wants his address i said i'm sorry you know can be so weird but i it's yeah i'm not going to betray my confidence and like i think no but so weird wants to meet him so does so weird know his story that like, no no that's like i said i'm sorry like you know it's wow no disrespect to so weird but like it's he's no longer a teammate like you know i can't just like yeah so yeah it's just it's just one of those things so as much 
uh and and it's one of the rare stories where i brought myself into it like because if i i realized that, that was if, the beauty of the story yeah right? thank you thank that you. was the beauty yeah. of the story yeah. it's always difficult to know how to play that like on this trip here i've been doing tour diaries and it's like it's a lot more of me than is a typical conversation the podcast yeah. and you think oh, do people just think you're a wanker exactly. but sometimes exactly. yeah. a story like that it, yeah it yeah it needs your voice as well it does. what did that do for you writing a story like that that went global amongst the cricket yeah. community and outside the cricket community yeah. for the human nature of it yeah i mean look it did it has become like um like my one of my claims to fame yeah. i guess that's your signature piece to it this is. point i'm it sure is. there's more to come yeah but. i'm sure but it just but for me that piece has always meant more than just just the piece it's that look i'm this young kid who grew up loving west indies cricket getting beaten up for the sake of west indies cricket you know not going to school because west indies lost to kenya in a world cup match like yeah more us dumba yeah exactly and to be able to even like be there for one former west indian cricketer i mean obviously but it goes beyond it's a human human connection yes. but it almost feels like i'm i have always had this debt to pay to west indian cricket because they i don't know they i've always felt through, through those growing up years that they kept me relevant like you know i was yeah it made me happy like when brian lara played that 153 not out like you know i was not in a good place in life as a child but that day i was like you know even my brother everyone was like you know pumping for me because it didn't come against india like so and it came against <laughs> australia that also helped yeah i know i know, I know. Uh, you know so just to give people a snapshot for change gears was like bro i've been trying while i've been here to explain the level of celebrity yeah of the indian cricketer you wrote an extraordinary book about ms doni that people should read but just just in a minute give people an indication of the size and the reach mm. the viewers the love the expectation on virat kohli yeah. and the fact he's married to a, a bollywood mm. star as well like what 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 is life like from what you see from the outside of virat kohli who you deal with a lot yeah oh look i mean we speak about we spoke a lot about bubbles during covid right but the kind of bubble that these indian cricketers live in like is it's kind of it's it's so much more intense than like even some of those covid bubbles because they they just can't have a normal life like which is why when they are on tour in australia or playing county cricket like pujara is like they get to live life like normal people otherwise their life is so like uh, ensconced in just being a celebrity and that's true for a lot of celebrities in india bollywood people as well where they kind of even if they want to be normal at some level they are not allowed to be because the way celebrity works here and i'm sure you've learned that in your visits here yeah. there's this uh their deities they're, they're beyond celebrities they're worshiped so you don't want to, like for the average indian fan doesn't want to see virat kohli not doing what he thinks virat he or she thinks virat kohli should be doing like you know um in terms of what they're wearing to not just a cricket bit like just the life they're leading it's not aspirational it's not like the west where you can aspire to there are ceilings it's a class based society it's a caste based society there are ceilings put at every level so i'm not going to dream of being virat kohli in that sense of living in a house like that having that kind of life mm. but in a way i'm going to live vicariously through through these celebrities and which is why it goes from beyond going goes beyond just supporting them to like worshiping them yeah and so to 
and going back to your original question of how to write about Indian cricket, you have to bring that into perspective a lot. Like you're still writing for an audience who do not get to interact with Virat Kohli, even in a press conference. So you have to kind of break it down to them about, um, like from a human angle as well. It's not just a cricket angle. Like Which is why when Virat Kohli fails, like it's like he's not just let his team down or himself down. He's, they, when they say that he's let a billion people down, he has let a pe- billion people down. There's the pressure going into Exactly. I, I read, uh, no, I was told yesterday by a TV person, Hot Star, mm-hmm. when Kylie was batting yes. the other night, there was 80 million people yeah, watching. It broke the old uh, record. Uh, yeah. um, and when he got out, it went down to 20 million. Absolutely. In the space of two deliveries. Yeah. Can you imagine the pressure on you? day in, day out, walking out with that weight of expectation and being able to perform. Exactly. And the fact that him and a lot of others have done it at that level, like Tendulkar before him and Kohli now. I mean, the population of India keeps growing. There's now more people, like, you know, at least... And and how is is he to deal with when you're speaking to Virat Kohli in an interview situation? I've, thankfully, so Virat and I kind of came into the industry the same, 2008. Yeah. So I remember interviewing him in 2011 on his first ever test tour. It was to the Caribbean. And he was very different to the way he is now. Uh, you know, he was still this very uh, Delhi kid. Like, you know, but Delhi kid. But what I mean by that is he was edgy and like, you know, in your face. But that was more on the field. When you when I interviewed him, I what I saw was this... Um, there's this kid who was trying to like find his feet like kind of fit into like this whole global um, it's the, face, the fact that even then in 2011 he'd already won a 50-year World Cup and said I'll want to carry the yes. burden of India after Tendulkar and yes. all of that so you could already see he was a kid trying to fit into that role of being this global face of Indian cricket even back then and then his maturity levels have been crazy like all those three tours of the Caribbean at some point Virat was captain, like or not in 2011, but in 13 and 15, now in 17. So I, I got to interact with him at that level, and like I know we've spoken about stuff like oh why Siberian Huskies should not be kept in like houses in Bombay, and Delhi, <laughs> and like really random things. He's one thing I've really liked about him. He's and uh, it's helped that he's married to uh, a, a celebrity, another really so, high so profile. How famous celebrity. is his wife? She's right up there with like, you know, I mean, where Virat Kohli is in cricket. I mean, she's been in the top three. I'm not a big Bollywood guy, but from what I know, she's been in the top three high, most highly rated, highly wanted Bollywood actresses. In the so last it's a meeting years. of the two things that Indians love, isn't it? Absolutely. Cricket and Bollywood. Like their social media following combined is... Yeah. In, in Like we're talking hundreds of millions of people, aren't we? Oh, next level, yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, he's what, he's in the top five of most followed athletes in the world. Is he? Yeah, he is already. And she is right up there, like, you know, when it comes wow. to... I, I guess you have to go back to uh, when Nawab of Pataudi married Sharmila Tagore in the 1970s. Like, at that point, Sharmila Tagore was <laughs> number one and Nawab of Pataudi was captain of India, right? Like, and the, one of the more celebrated captains of India. So that's the last time cricket and Bollywood came together. But, but at that no, Instagram. Back to Bharat in a moment. Lots of cricketers have appeared on this show. Obviously a passion of mine. We've had some superstar cricketers on, some superstar people, but one of my favourites, maybe my all-time favourite, who just won the World Cup, is Mitch Marsh. Episode 135. This is an episode for anyone who has ever doubted themselves. And I remember driving to um, Perth Stadium to play against the Renegades, and um, I just had this horrible feeling in my guts and I, I, I didn't want to play the game and uh, I remember calling uh, Andrew Weller and uh, I said mate I don't think I can play this game like 
I was borderline in tears. Um, and this sounds very dramatic, but it's, it's not. But, um, and, uh, I just had this, I, I didn't want to play it. I didn't, didn't know how I was going to score any, a run. Um, I got to Perth Stadium. I sat in my car for half an hour. I couldn't get out of the car. Wow. And, um, and like, I, I didn't know what to do. Um, I eventually got out of the car, put a smile on my face, um, went out, didn't really perform, but I got through the game and, uh, I didn't like the way that cricket made me feel at that point in time. Um, and that was, that point was, has been a huge turning career point in my career to date. Um, and I guess my message there is I was going through some stuff mentally with the game of cricket itself, um, all based around just wanting to do well and play cricket for Australia. That is Mitchell Marsh on episode 135. You will not, simply will not meet a more caring individual than Mitchell Marsh. Let's get back to Bharat. As a Mumbai local, you end up in Australia. Why did you move to Australia and, and what did you think when you, when you settle, settled into Australian suburban life? Like this long-haired, <laughs> smiley, colourful dude. Like you, I walk around the streets of Kolkata, I stand out from the crowd. Yes. You walk around the streets of Adelaide, you stand course, out from the crowd. Yeah. How, how was the transition moving oh, to uh, Australia? Uh, I almost found it easier than when what it was like to be myself in India. Did you? I, I totally did. Mm. Like, yeah, because Australian society might have its issues like every other society. One thing it does celebrate is being yourself. And I mean, yes, I mean, at some level, it is a regimented society. Like people seem to do everything like, you know, in like this, these brackets, but it, it just gives you that freedom to be, I, I, maybe it's now more now than it was how what it was like in the past. Uh, when I speak to other South Asians who moved there in the 90s, and even Uzi is a great example of that. But now I almost feel like they want you to be yourself, but just generally, I mean, even amongst like the, the white Australians, like you're, you're encouraged to be yourself. Like I see kids with long hair and I envy, I don't envy much in life. <laughs> Every time I see a kid with, you know, a boy with young hair going to school, I'm like, why wasn't I allowed to be that kid? <laughs> but um, the reason we moved to Australia was uh, both my wife and I reached a point in India where, I, and like, and I would love India. I mean, it's just my motherland, right? Like, uh, but I never, like you speak about standing out. Even here, I always stood out because... I wasn't trying to be different. I was just trying to be myself. I was comfortable in my own skin, but it was always looked down upon. And I understand from a societal point of view, there's pressure on my parents. Like the one question I was always asked, why, why do you have to be yourself? Just be like your brother, be like everyone else. What is with all of this? So I was always trying to break free. Like I just tried, even though I had a successful journalism career here, like, you know, I was doing Indian cricket, traveling the world. I just didn't feel like, you know, I fit in. And it was more for my wife, though. She's a special needs teacher. Uh, But this amazing woman who's also an amazing artist. But she never could pursue her art beyond a point here. So we and we don't come from money, either of us. So we had to take this huge gamble. And we said, like, whatever we have, we're going to pull it in together. We can't apply for our PR for both of us. We don't have money. So you go and study. And it had to be a cricket country, obviously. Of course. (laughs) Of course, brother. Yeah. And so it was between England and Australia. And I'd been to Australia for the first time in 2014-15, like the the Phil Hughes tour, right after his passing. So 
I love that lady. You know, a lot of people like, you know, think she says, what are you talking about, man? But, <laughs> you know, but he's Victorian. He yes. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I just, something about Adelaide. And I always thought, if I'm coming from a city like Mumbai, it has to be different yeah, completely. Yeah, completely. yeah, I guess, yeah. Well, Melbourne can't compete with Mumbai. So, you, you say you, you're able to be more yourself. You mentioned it was, he, he told me on this show about, he was really open about it. He's such a wonderful, lovely man mm. about walking into the hotel, I think it was in Melbourne, and a couple of times being asked, what are you doing here? Yeah. And he relayed that to the colour of his skin. Yeah. You wrote about situations like that, which was hard to read. Yeah. Hard to read as an Australian that works yeah. in sport. Yeah. But important to read. What were those experiences like and how have you dealt with them? How was writing about it received? Because it, you wrote about it, but then 100 people wrote about you writing about it. Mm. So the story yeah. got big yeah. quickly. Yeah. Uh, it's not easy writing about it either. Like, because you... Well, you know when you press send to the editor that, yes. hang on. Yeah. But you talked about with Patrick Patterson being part of the story... You are the story yeah. in this situation. Yeah. And I just didn't like being the story. Like, my first ever day in Australia, in 2014. So I land, and uh, this is three days before Philip Hughes' funeral. And I was like, no, if I want the story, I need to go to Maxwell two days before, not on the funeral day. So I go to Maxwell uh, with, with the, the mayor of Birthplace of, of Phil Hughes. Yeah, yeah, birthplace of Phil Hughes. One pub, one school, do my, speak to people, have my stories. So just before leaving, I'm in this pub. Uh, and I remember I'm sitting here on a far table. There's Michael Clark, Phil Hughes' dad, and a few others. And then where I was sat, there were these two big, like, trucky guys. And one of them looks at me and like, Nah, hey, you terrorist, mate. You got a bomb in a bag, mate. Yeah, and my reaction to every time I was like, Someone said racially something or whatever, anything discriminatory. It was always go to humor. That's just my natural response. So I said, man, like, just look at you. You look like a big bomber more than I do. And then his mates were like, oh, yeah, that's right, mate. And then before you know it, he was buying me a beer and asking me to come and, like, you know, sleep in his shed or whatever. And at that point, I was like, that's cool. Bharat is cool. That's how Bharat deals with, like, racism. Like, yeah. Then the longer I spent time in Australia, and I would kind of, allow people to be say racist things to me and say I'll make a joke out of it and I'll say something back to you then I realized not everyone is like me in fact very few people are like me so what's the point of me having a voice if I'm like ridiculing my own people in this way and I felt like an idiot and then when the whole Mohammed Siraj incident happened in Sydney I was doing commentary on SENN writing that's the day I wrote about how much of an idiot I'd been all these years and what Siraj, regardless of whether it, they said something racist or so not. So something in the crowd that was said to, said to him at the SCG. Yeah. Just him saying, I'm not going to cop this and stopping play in his first test series like, taught me a lot. I said, yeah. that's what I should be doing. Like, not, like Uzi and I have spoken about this uh, after that. Like, you can't do it every day. Like, you can't, because there's stuff, people are saying stuff all the time. Oh, do you have a gun? Are you a terrorist? Are you this? Are you that? Oh, like, why is he inside the hotel? Oh, I need to take my wallet away because I feel unsafe. Or even if people don't say anything, Harvey, like, you know, you're just walking on the street. And you know me, I smile at everyone. Mm. Um, you start, stop at a red light. Um, you look at someone next to you, smile, and they cross the road. Like, And you're like, wait, dude, I'm like the most friendly person you'll meet. Like, don't run away from me. Like, those things hurt. What is wrong with people? I don't know. I don't know. Like, I don't know. Like, I think it's... 
I've also been told. Do you, what do you think it is? Do you think it's fear of the yeah. unknown? Yeah. Ignorance. So in in my life experience, I think racism comes in two ways. How we? I'm sure others yeah. may have their own theories. It either comes from ignorance, and I think a lot of Australian society it comes from ignorance. Like it comes a, a certain generation. Like they're like, why should we be politically like correct? We were allowed to say use a certain word. Yeah, there's a difference, mate, between being politically correct and just being a good person. Right? Yes, like yeah. that, that's I don't know whatever generation you come from. Like being compassionate and understanding yeah. is sort of the number one thing you want to be, isn't it? You th- and every society, whether it's based on religion or whatever, that's what you're brought upon, right? Like that tells tells me a lot about your upbringing. Like, isn't that what you were taught? Like to be do unto others as you yeah, do exactly to be kind to people. So we. We need to move off this topic because it's a it's a down topic. Um, the reaction when you wrote the article, mm. how much positivity came your way, and how much further ignorance and hatred came your way? It was eighty twenty, and it was which uh, way? Uh, positive, right? Yeah, I was so happy uh, with the responses, and it was arguably one of the most um, emotional mornings of my life. The next morning, I was staying at a friend's house quite far away, so I had to take. A train, a tram, and a bus to get to the SCG, and there I am stood at this railway station. People are coming up to me. People I've never met before. Uh, there was a sixty-year-old Indian origin man who said that I've faced so much of this all these years. You've finally given me a voice. My daughter has faced all of this. I told her. I made her read the piece, and look, she's feeling better about her life. Uh, a lot of like um, white Australians of a certain age came up to me and said, like, we apologize. We apologize for what my generation has done to. You and other people like you, um, and then I get into an Uber. The Uber guy says, "Oh, it's you! You wrote this piece. Thank you so much." And he was hmm. from, I think, Iran. He spoke about everything he's faced, and how he feels empowered, like by what happened. And then the same thing as I walks walking into the SCG, and even in the commentary box, every, every former Australian cricketer in the commentary box came and put an arm around me, and you did as well about you know how emotional it made you feel. I was embarrassed though. Yeah, yeah. I was embarrassed. I know. I know. Yeah, and. Yeah, you you didn't make eye contact with me. No, no I know. But well, it's it's like I love Australia, but how shit is that? Yeah, like how shit is that? Yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's look, it's gonna be around. And the other twenty percent, the negative stuff, is what told me. Like there was some articles written about me which were rather unkind to me and my kind, um, and a lot of. And what disappointed me the most was that a lot of uh, Indian expats who took umbrage to what I wrote and said, "Like, hey, you don't come here and talk about this country like this. I've lived here." And a friend of mine who went to school in in Australia from India, he says, "I was called a monkey all the time in school. What's the big deal?" I'm like, dude, but that is the problem. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, you just you can't like, yeah. At least maybe you didn't have a voice then. I do, like, and I have to speak up about it. Like Uzi does all the time. Like we, otherwise, what's the point of? Um, the platform exactly yeah. yeah and I think it was overwhelming like, I was so touched to have so have made an impact on so many people in in a good way obviously not so much in a bad way but again maybe even in that twenty percent even if one percent of them suddenly feel like oh maybe we should do something different I think I think we we are one as a, as a community as a society and I'm very grateful that Australia accepted me and Australia as my home and I can't wait to take the pledge honestly and become a citizen like very soon 
uh and it would make me like me and my wife like that's that's what like you know dreams are made of right we took this big gamble she did everything she went by herself lived there for 20 months by herself she worked three jobs while doing her masters uh, and she didn't go there in her 20s that she went there when she was 30 to do that and set up everything and I, it was the easiest move for me mm-hmm. i mean like i remember i took a backpack at a house at a job had a car and a wife who still wanted me so you know it was the easiest move for me full credit to her and we love australia like i can't tell you how every time i'm landing into adelaide like i know i pinch myself and say this is home like yeah. you know this is my home thank you australia like right. the last book i wrote uh, about that famous gabba series uh, the uh, that's why i was like oh, what do i give the dedicate the book to to the country of australia for giving me that second inning which is why you will be a wonderful addition when uh when you get naturalized and pasteurized and become an Australian citizen. Hey, just before we let you go, we talked about the scale of cricket in this country. You work for an operation Crick Buzz. Mm. Yeah. Where you do beautiful writing and I love listening to you on SEN as well on the wireless. Um I love it when you go with Jared Waitley and yeah. it, it it brings India home to me when I hear you. But give people an idea of the scale of the cricket website that you write for. Mm. So, how how many people are on CricketBuzz? It's it's madness. Like, and I I didn't know the scale before I started working for them or started contributing to them. Is they're talking like hundred plus million downloads, and like at any given point, if India is playing, you're talking what hundreds of millions of people who are just on the app for scores and. to know what's happening and like the previews get like incredibly so the video previews I was talking to Simon Dool about this he was talking like 90 million yeah, views easy, for easy. for a preview, for a preview. of a game yeah. a video preview that doesn't have any footage no nothing just people like uh who they trust talking about what's going to happen and that's the scale of cricket buzz and just again indian cricket fandom right like it's it goes beyond i do not i'm not a fan of cricket as a religion in india line because religion unfortunately in india divides people mm. cricket does bring people together it's much more than a religion and it uh it it kind of is the heartbeat of india right like it, as a sport not just as a sport as an entity it is the heartbeat of india and cricket just does some scary numbers like at, at times when i write you kind of get that feeling whoa that's a lot of responsibility i better not get the playing 11 wrong yeah, yeah. yeah. but is. when you put opinion pieces into then people oh, are absolutely yeah um, just, it, the, the something you wrote the other day something you wrote the other day uh, really captured me um better you read it again Um we're talking about Maxi's innings. Yeah. Everybody here's on their feet. And Maxwell hits it. Oh, can it make it? It does make it. Glenn Maxwell. Unbelievable. The most remarkable thing you'll probably ever see in cricket. Staggering. Absolutely mind-blowing. What a win. And he should not have to walk off the park. He should be carried off. What a performance. Oh yes. Read me this paragraph because it for someone that was there watching in Mumbai this captured perfectly what it was to me. Thank you. This was if anything more than a special performance and more than just an exceptional effort. This was the ultimate embodiment of genius. This was a freakishly gifted enigma etching his genius in stone. <laughs> this was a moment in time the kind that generally gets enshrined by someone. <laughs> uh going building uh someone building the man a statue 
Only that it felt like Maxwell was already in statue form, his feet seemingly stuck in concrete owing to the crippling cramps, his body immobile, his toes, his hamstring, his back, his calves, all having retired for the night in the November humidity of Mumbai. So when you write that and you send it out to what is millions of people, if I get to commentate a game like that, I sit there and think, I can't believe I'm sitting here in Mumbai next to Ricky Ponting or... Ian Smith or Michael Atherton talking about one of the great cricket performances of all time. Do you write that and send it out and ever reflect to the bloke that was going out to the farmhouse and was completely off the rails and now is bringing this to so many people? No, I think that's a different human being. That human being, I almost (laughs) feel like uh, he he died, died that night, that, that afternoon and... When I said I don't want to die a loser, I want a second innings in life. It's like, I mean, I can relate a little bit with him. Recently, someone sent me a picture of me with short hair and I put it up on social media. And just everybody said, that doesn't look like you. And I said, yeah, because I can see the eyes and you can always make out from someone's eyes, right? Like, I'm not that person. Uh, it just, uh, I mean, like being there that night at, at the Wankade and seeing Max do what he did, it's a privilege. Like, you know, it's every day is a privilege. I mean, like, honestly, I don't know how much, uh, like, and I mean, people think I'm just being cliche, but I really do believe every day I have lived since the second overdose is a bonus and it's a privilege. And that's why I try my level best to, like, you know, yes, I, I write stuff like that. And like, I'm like, oh, even when I'm reading it, I'm like, wow, did I come up with that? That's pretty, pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> and on the yeah, back. Part of the back for Bharat, but... <laughs> I think what means more to me is uh, bringing smiles on people's faces. Like, that's why you see me never sit in a press box. I'm just walking around. If I can make 10 people smile every day, that makes me a million times more happy than millions of people reading stuff like that and saying, oh, Bharat writes well. Like, that's not my identity. Like, this is my identity. And, you know, that's one thing I love about our relationship as well. Yes. We see each other and we're so, we're like, mutually so happy to see each other. Yes. That's why we yell out our names at each other. Well, I think we both understand that we are non-test cricketers yes. that get to talk about cricket. Exactly. And people listen to us. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we're even positive on social media. Yeah. Other times not so much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's one ninety ten. <laughs> <laughs> so, mate, we, we always finish the same way. Um, we have a lot of young people listen to this show that aspire to do things extremely well, as mm-hmm. you have done in your journalism career. They might want to be journalists or they might want to be scientists or concert pianists or mm-hmm. Megadeth guitarists yes. or whatever it may be. What advice from your experiences would you give those inquiring minds that think, okay, how do I achieve success? I really do think whatever you choose to do in life, that can't be your only source of happiness or ironically getting high in life. Yeah. You need at least three more for sources of happiness. Otherwise, you can get consumed by whatever. If, if you, regardless of if you're a pianist or a guitarist or a writer or a cricketer, if that's your identity is defined by what you do, uh, you it, it kind of depends on what you do every time. That's too much stress and pressure to put on yourself to be happy. And I think the secret to life is to be happy, right? I mean, I know it's not easy for everyone. It's, there are so many issues that people have to overcome. But I think if you can focus on that and just make sure that you're really good at what you do. I mean, never take that for granted. If you're good at something, uh, like be, I say be 
humble but never modest like if you're really good at something take pride in being good at it that's when you'll get even better that's when you'll push yourself to keep yourself at that level if you start being too modest and say yeah no it's fine like you you're already like subconsciously saying that i'm content with where i am but i think you need to keep pushing yourself to get better and better at whatever you do but always make sure that like being a human being matters more to you than just being good at what you do and from my life experience of everything i i gone through my overdose and like my the four or five years where i literally almost killed myself uh i always say that like you know we all have these dark phases and like they could last for five minutes or five years i think if you just keep telling yourself that like in test cricket there is always a second innings that second innings will come your way like never give up just because you failed on your first innings there's always a second innings that's my biggest lesson in life that i've learned and that's the one lesson i want to give everyone it's a great finish you are on the way to having a winning test match there's no doubt about that mate i've been looking forward to this like i think we share a lot of approaches to life in common but always to see you at the cricket makes you smile um you're a good man thanks for joining me on the how it games oh thank you so much i mean like you know we can go back to just yelling our name bara Now there is a life. There is a life. We are lucky in my humble opinion to have Bharat call Australia home. He did want to do a full episode also on his other passion in life which is wrestling. He also wanted to do a full episode on heavy metal music and then he wanted to do a full episode on fashion. He is a man of passion. Hope it all gave you a lift as it did me. Until next Thursday with the next chapter with baseballer Liam Hendricks. Peace and love. And we can do it if we try 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 If we try 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 If we try try try